Welcome to Soccer Better Season 3. We're Liz and Laura Ellen. Liz is a lawyer and Laura Ellen is the scientist. We've put our education to use by digging into the analytical side of all things soccer. Each episode, we discuss a piece of soccer or sports research. Join us as we discover how we can all soccer better. Welcome back to Soccer Better Season 3, Episode 7, and today's article is entitled Successful Return to Professional Men's Football, Soccer, Competition after the COVID-19 shutdown, a cohort study in the German Bundesliga. There we go. Took you two breaths. Two breaths. But I intentionally paused because I knew I couldn't get through it in one. Um, And this article came out in 2021 uh, by Tim Meyer and colleagues. And this this feels like a very timely uh, article, Liz. Yeah. Uh, I think that it gives, for people who don't know anything about um, how viruses work and are not experts by any means, it gives me a lot of questions to hopefully get hopeful answers to. I feel hopeful after this. Okay, Liz feels hopeful. I should say before I forget that this article was published in BMJ Open, which is an open access journal online uh Anyway, I think BMJ stands for the British Medical Journal, but don't quote me on that. I tried to look it up, but it's just BMJ Open. So, but this is like a a highly cited journal. So this is a fairly reputable source. And it's a pretty interesting study. And it's very timely because it has to do with COVID-19. And Liz is hopeful. Yeah, guys. All right. So I guess let's, let's dig in. So what the authors of this paper did... Uh, they looked to see, um, so I'll just like read the objective actually, because I think they summarize it well to evaluate the restart of the German Bundesliga football soccer during the COVID-19 pandemic from a medical perspective. So, I mean, I think that like covers it, right? So they were looking at Bundesliga and they were looking at the top tier Bundesliga and then Bundesliga two. Um, and I noted, I was like, ooh, Liz is going to pick up on this, that the Women's League did not participate. Um, I, d- I don't know the reason for that. They did not say, I don't believe they said the reason for that, but they chose not to participate, which for research, research, in order for it to be ethical, needs to be voluntary. All right, fine. But we, <laughs> don't, but we don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> She's giving me a big thumbs up guy like Liz. Don't soapbox it. I mean, it's fine. But I mean, I do think one of the things that stood out for me and we can like get into the testing that they did. But this is so resource intensive. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I think that I would have mentioned, of course, that this was only the men's league. They could have decided to do, you know, Bundesliga and Bundesliga women as opposed to Bundesliga and Bundesliga 2. But it is incredibly resource intensive um, on top of everything else that the individual teams were doing in order to uh, safely restart. So I, it's not that I don't understand, but I always think it's worth noting. And if more people point out what's missing, maybe someone will fill in those gaps. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, um, which they don't, 
I was hoping that they would kind of talk about how resource intensive this is. And I felt like they were kind of alluding to it in the discussion of the results, but that really wasn't the focus of uh, their paper, right? The focus was like, can we safely play soccer during a pandemic and how do we go about doing that? So, um, but I mean, I think that's a, a nice um, contextual framework to have and just to acknowledge, especially when we talk about, okay, where do we go from here and what does this mean you know, for other soccer leagues or, you know, kind of people in general. Um, so anyway, so what they did, they had two different types of tests, which, you know, if you've like spent any time reading the news, I feel like you've probably heard of these types of tests. So there's the PCR test. And again, Liz said this, but we are not epidemiologists. I am not an epidemiologist. That is not the kind of science I do. We are not biologists. We do not study um, infectious diseases. So we are reading this very much from like an informed layman perspective or laywoman perspective, layperson perspective. That's right. Gender, That's right, people. Gender is not a binary. Let's layperson perspective. Um uh, yeah, and so that's, you know, we, we are like well-educated lay people reading this and therefore we are not experts. So trust the experts, trust scientists. Right. And we also acknowledge that even though we're talking about this now, um, I mean, the, the advice and what we find out and things that we say, like all that stuff can change um, as we learn more because we're always learning more about, you know, diseases in general, but COVID-19 specifically is, is a constantly growing field because you're living through a pandemic instead of hearing all the things that someone learned about the 1918 pandemic that they learned, you know, in 1922. So um, keep all of that in mind. Yes. So they did these PCR tests, which I'm sure this, these are like the nasal swabs that, you know, if anyone has, most people, you know, I've had this, you know, I've had the nasal swab a couple times. So they had those two times a week and then they had the antibody testing um, and they had that two times throughout the season. And uh, this study, I believe, was looking at the 2019-2020 season, which ended in July. So they did this um, study over the course of nine weeks from May through July, uh, which I thought was interesting. And they had a lot of microbiology descriptions in the methods section that I tried but failed to understand. Well, you're not going to get the information from me either because it was incredibly detailed. I will say, reading through it, like the, the couple of things that I could eventually lean, I didn't mind reading through it two or three times. It was well written. I am sure that someone who has any kind of biology background um, could read this, understand it, and bring it down to my fifth grade level of understanding for microbiology. Um, but I really like the beginning of the paper where they're talking about what they did. I found very interesting, you know, the number of people involved, um, the fact that they tracked two different things. And then the end of the paper is where I have all of my notes because the middle I was just like, oh, yeah, this is over my head. I'm sure it's very important, but I don't understand. Yes. 
So I do think, uh, okay, so let's move to the results. Let's talk about what they found because I thought that was interesting. Um, so 1,702 people were regularly tested, um, and that was 1,079 players and 623 officials. That's a lot of people. And they're all voluntary. So, like, I know you said at the beginning, like, it has to be voluntary, like, as a joke towards me. But I didn't realize that the teams weren't saying, you're going to have to do this because we've decided that you're doing this. There are a number of people who, for whatever reason, and they cover some of those reasons, which I think is interesting, um, decided not to participate in any of the testing. So it is incredible. They got someone to agree to have their brain tickled twice a week for nine weeks. And then um, they did the antibody test, which I assume was a blood draw. So it's it's a lot of people to say, yeah, I want to be part of this. And I think it's great that they were willing to, you know, step up and say, not only am I an athlete who wants to do my job, but I'm willing to also participate in this side project for science. Right. And just, yeah, and additional levels. And And the PCR testing, right, is like an additional level of screening. So they had a symptom level screening so they had a questionnaire on a mobile app which i thought was really cool i think one of the things at least from my perspective that has really moved forward at a much more rapid pace than um would have happened otherwise is the adoption of technology for different things so like mobile um symptom tracking um telemedicine Um, which is something that I, you know, I'm interested in on the side, right? But like telemedicine appointments, um, telemental health appointments. I mean, I know that's something that we talk a lot about here and certainly it's not in this paper at all, but um, because of of COVID and because of um, how COVID is spread, um, at least in the U.S., right? uh, uh, Telehealth is being covered and being paid for by insurance companies in a way that it wasn't being paid for before, which has increased and expanded access. So that has absolutely nothing <laughs> to do with this paper other than, you know, it's related to COVID. And, and I thought it was just interesting that they're like, yeah, we had this symptom tracker that players and officials and trainers and, you know, all the people would respond to um, on their phones, which I was like, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, it's a great way to, to track that kind of thing. Um, I think another like big technological thing that I find very fascinating is the way in which privacy had to catch up. Um, I've, I mean, I don't know if I've mentioned it, but I focus on privacy um, in my day-to-day job. And I just find it very interesting how they were able to find ways to gather that information to make sure those meetings could happen to alert somebody that you may be at risk, but not put anyone else's privacy at risk. So um yeah, I think the technology had to grow just in leaps and bounds over this last year. Yeah, yeah. So looking at the PCR testing, over the course of the season, they had eight players and four officials who were positive um, in, during one of the first two rounds. So that was like before the onset of team training, after everything had shut down in March. Um, 
And what they thought and what they hypothesized from later testing was that three of the 12 cases were probably from a prior exposure to COVID, um, which I thought was interesting. And what I also thought was interesting that I made a note of here is that they didn't find a regional pattern in the cases that had come up, um, which I just thought um, was very interesting. And then in later um, rounds of testing, there were two cases which then resulted in a team having to uh, quarantine uh, for two weeks. Um, so, I mean, so the, the PCR testing, which is the up the nose in the brain testing, uh, jokingly in the brain, of course, but, um, that was the one that was happening every twice a week, um, for the entire course of the, of the two weeks. Did you find anything interesting, um, Liz, about the PCR testing? I think that there are additional comments around the testing is what I found the most interesting. So they said that, you know, you you had to do more than just get your PCR testing. You had to monitor yourself on the day-to-day, that you had to follow all of the extra procedures, um, that, you know, something that, sorry, there's a lot of extra noise, and it is my cat who is just rubbing her head and her tail all over the microphone, so it's super. Um, but they also talked about how, you know, there are other trends that probably accounted for a lot of the decreased activity that they saw, including the country is shut down. You were wearing a mask all the time. Um, you were probably somewhat in isolation in order to be able to play these games in order to officiate these games. So I think it's nice that they acknowledge that just because someone was getting tested twice a week and just because they were able to track the antibodies, that wasn't what made this possible, that everyone had to do a lot of other things. And there was a lot of other sacrifice in order to make the games happen, but then in order to facilitate their study as well. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And something I did skip over is that um, no one that they found who had tested positive for COVID demonstrated any symptoms except for one player And that player had um, a sore throat, right? So, like, I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, it's not unbelievable to me, but that is just, like, so um, striking to me. I think striking is a better word. Um, Because, again, it was just a reminder that, right, like, most of these cases, and they didn't have a high case rate, which, you know, is something else that, you know, that we'll get to in the discussion. Um, But that, like, even the cases that they did have were asymptomatic, Right. And they were being tested twice a week. Right. Like and like constantly monitoring their symptoms. So anyway, I just I found that like super interesting also. Yeah, I think that that goes I mean, it goes a lot to show why COVID became so scary so fast because you you couldn't avoid it just by watching out for people who were sneezing. It's not like the flu. Um, It was this whole different kind of beast. And it really highlighted it here that there were all these other things at play while they were trying to figure out um, going back to work, basically. Yeah. All right. So um, let's talk about, did you have anything else to talk about the results of the test? They had some like interesting things about the antibody test and like shifting from um, like borderline to positive and negative to borderline. Like, and they had some hypotheses about why that was happening. Did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I was surprised that most of the borderlines ended up being negative. I thought it would have been a more even split. Um, 
So, I mean, I guess when I read that, I guess my biggest thing was anyone who got a test, I'm glad they told them either yes or no, as opposed to saying, well, we're not sure. Even if you had to come back in for a second test, like those rapid tests, you often had to come back in for a second test. Um, but I'm really surprised that a lot of the borderline ended up being negative because I don't think that that's how, I guess, from what I know of the kinds of testing, like it seems unlikely to happen in most cases either you're more likely to get just a straight negative and if anything shows up wonky it's more likely to lean towards positive um and i wonder if that's just because it was a new type of test um i do wonder what caused so many to end up being negative yeah i mean i think that's a good point i think that um and they did mention that in the limitations section at the end of the paper that right this is this is all very new i mean this study happened from may to july so of of 2020 so um you know all of this was new the testing was relatively new um and the procedures were very relatively new as well so yeah i mean i think that's um yeah i think one of the things that um getting into the discussion and then i and then i have i have a question uh for you then but one of the things that i found interesting they had this uh, several sentences where they talked about essentially the fidelity of the PCR testing, the up the, the nasal swab. So they were talking about how they thought that um, the people who were administering the nasal swab may not have been doing it completely um, uh, accurately, right? And like they talk, they talk about like in order to do it accurately, it needs to be, it will be uncomfortable for the person receiving the the test, you know. So you have to like really go up the nose, right? Um, and that's where all the jokes of all the people be like, well, it touched my brain, you know. Um, and especially early on, I think especially with some of the earlier tests. Um, that was even more so the case. And so they were like, well, are, are the people doing the testing not going to want to like, quote unquote, injure, you know, these like well-known soccer players, um, which I just thought like that was interesting. And I think so I I think I've mentioned this before, but I do implementation science, which really looks at how um, how best practices get into use. And so um, fidelity or this idea of like, um, doing something the way that it was designed to be done um, is an important component of that. Um, and so when I read this, I was like, oh, this is interesting, right? There's like this social pressure not to like, you know, injure your favorite soccer player um, or like someone who's really important to your employer, uh, which may be more likely. But um, anyway, I just, I found that interesting. Yeah, I noted the same paragraph. I'm like, this is a real weird thing to the way that they phrased it like was just very odd to me um but i guess yeah you're right it's a real world concern are your testing staff being aggressive enough and and is that um is that means you're not getting good results or is it meaning that some of the players were like you know what i'm only going to do this once because i didn't like it and so do you lose participants um i can see why it's a, a real concern but basically like did you shove that far enough up their nose? I know. Talk to me about it. <laughs> yeah. And so they talked about how they tried to address some of those concerns by really trying to like educate not only the testing staff, but also the players and the officials 
and just really emphasizing why it is so important to get this right. Um, and especially if you like really want your soccer season to happen, right? If you really want to play, you're a professional. This is like, this is what you love doing. Um, you know, there, there's like a little bit more of an incentive to, um, like go through the, the pain. Um, yeah. Get... 18 times, 18 Whew. times, like just consistently. Do you think they like switched nostrils so that no one got a bloody nose? Did it pop blood vessels? I, I have a lot of questions about how people's noses fared with so much um, testing. I know. That's a, that's actually a good point. Hmm. I wonder if they did like a satisfaction survey. <laughs> I mean, obviously not a satisfaction survey. I'm but glad you know. I got to play, but I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Which I think that brings me to my question and thinking about how to soccer better. So I have seen conversations online and, and I have not participated in them, but I've seen these conversations where, um, especially as sports leagues around the world were like some of the first entertainment things to really happen in some kind of like real quote unquote normal way, right? Like they were playing in stadiums. Granted, the stadiums were mostly empty. Okay. So that people, I, I, I heard, I have heard the complaints that like, why sports? Like, is that really the thing that we're focusing on? Like, is that really the thing that we need to be um, putting our resources behind, right? This is so resource intensive. Like, think about all the money that was spent by these clubs to pay for all the tests, pay for the staff, pay for, you know, all the other things, you know, um, and the league. You know, is, is our sports really the thing that, like, during this pandemic... Were they really the thing that we should have been prioritizing or should we have been prioritizing something else? And so for me, that like raises the question. And so I've, I've also heard conversations on the flip side of that saying soccer, football, especially in Europe, um, is like such a social thing. And so even though people are not able to be there in person, at least having something that we can watch on the television or computer or whatever um, still brings together some sort of community, especially for folks who don't have a community in other areas of their life that they can like phone or FaceTime or Skype, Zoom, whatever. So I would just love your thoughts on, on that argument, right? Like this emphasis that has been put on sports, right? I have a friend who works for an NFL team and she during the season and even still, I think she is getting tested every single day. Like she's getting the PCR test every single day because that's what the NFL is doing here in, in the U S. So every day that she goes in to work, which is like most days she gets tested. Um, anyway, so like our sports, the thing go (laughs) just, just lay it all out there. So as the advice has developed about, and as it developed, you know, in the early stages about what is safe or what is not safe, um, things that I was able to do were all revolving around being outside. And as I did more research about um, how the virus had initially spread and especially how it spread indoors with areas 
that have like buildings have a one-way flow for air you know like it circulates and it just everything goes in the circle and that means that all of the molecules in the air also go in the circle and like how that increased the infection rates so i guess for me as as the advice continue to proceed i don't know what else we could have focused on from a purely entertainment perspective um i i guess you could have emphasized you know outdoor music um i think that that would have changed a lot of venues uh they are way more dependent on weather so you know you're going to play soccer in the snow you're going to play soccer in the rain as long as it's not lightning you're, you're probably playing soccer um so you have fewer barriers there i think it was one of the only for me it's one of the only safe entertainments that you know yes they come into contact with each other but you know baseball football soccer you're you're not face to face you're not um you're not in an area where those molecules are enclosed so for me it may have been one of the only uh safe entertainments and as we continue um to go into over a year of such strict lockdowns for some places and rolling lockdowns and wearing masks to every store and not getting to hug your friends or family, having some kind of release where you had something to talk about besides, hey, how's your day? Well, I'm still at home. I still wear a mask to the store. Uh, I still can't, and in the winter for us, like I still can't go eat outside and I don't really feel safe eating indoors. So I've got either nothing or sports. So I'm glad that sports were around. Um, I'm glad that eventually they let some fans into the stadiums. I think there were a number of places that were, you know, very reserved about how many people they let in. There were some that made me a little more nervous because as a fan, you are standing in a single area and, you know, high-fiving and whatever. Um, But you're still, you're you're outdoors. How much different is that from uh, eating at a restaurant where you're sitting outdoors? Um, compared to standing outdoors with, with other fans. So I don't know what our other options could have been for some kind of group entertainment that gave you something to socialize about in our proverbial water cooler of the internet, Skype, Zoom. So for me, I'm, I'm glad that we did enough research and were able to have some kind of season in a limited manner. Yeah, no, I think that's that's good. And I think um, just uh, one point I wanted to make, and, and I know you, so um, uh, I feel comfortable saying this. Uh, you know, I, I think it's important to think about, like, what are strategies that we are using for risk reduction with the knowledge that, like, nothing is ever 100% completely safe, right? Because I think especially at the beginning of the pandemic, there were a lot of things like, oh, well you know, more people die from heart disease than die from COVID. Okay, well, that's not true anymore, right? Like, you know, right. you could get, you know, killed in a car accident. You know, you're more likely to get killed in a car accident than by COVID. And it's like, okay, like, nothing is 100% safe, but, like, what are we doing to reduce the risk? And I think you're absolutely right. I think especially in the Northern Hemisphere where we are during summer, which is when the, you know, spring and summer, which is when, soccer happens here um it you know the risks were a whole lot 
were, were fairly low for us to like, I, I didn't get to any matches, but you know, to like for, to have a couple hundred fans, thousand fans, depending on how big your stadium is, sit scattered in their like family pods across the stadium, right. To have the players play. I agree. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that's where, well, you know, actually I, I mostly land on that side of, of the discussion. I think, I think, you know, and as we know, various countries did, uh, you know, were successful in different degrees of success and failure in addressing, um, uh, the response to COVID. And, and so I think like Unfortunately, right? I, I get well, and I guess there's a difference between like government and private entities, right? So it's not like these soccer clubs were necessarily like using like government funds to, but maybe I don't know, I don't know, I don't know where the funding came from. Now I'm like getting, now I'm getting like you're going down a real rabbit hole. Yeah, it's. So we don't need to sit here while I think aloud. Um, Liz, what were some other... So that was, like, my big, like, takeaway for, like, Soccer Better is that this whole thing, this whole process that they did, yes, they were able to have... They were able to finish out the season. Now, like, you know, the next year's season has begun, right? We're, like, you know, we're having our soccer games. We're having our sporting events. We figured out how to do that in some kind of meaningful way. Um, but it's so resource intensive and, and is the use of that many resources, the best use of those resources during this time. So that was my soccer better. Sure. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really important question and it's something I just don't know enough about. Um, I know for us soccer for second division, us soccer, I mean, to not play and not have anyone and losing any type of fandom, is that more, is that more resource loss over, you know, the three year span than shutting down and not having players for one of those years? I mean, I just, I don't know enough about the intricacies of the finances. I know sports in general, second division sports in general, run on a very tight budget. They run on a shoestring budget. Um, I think even some of the bigger clubs, you know, they they have um, owners and benefactors and trusts that run at a deficit and it's a partial tax write-off. And that's fine. That's finances. I'm not good at finances. I'm glad that they work. Um, but I think that that was a real question for a lot of these owners for the USL champion. Like, like if we don't play at all, if we lose these players completely, can we even come back or is running at a loss and having some kind of season? Like, what does that mean? So I think that was a huge question. And I think there are a lot of changes coming up for our second season being run in the times of COVID, because regardless of what's happening with the number of vaccines types that are available, who they're available to, where they're available, um, which is incredibly state dependent for America. Just there are there are a lot of questions, and I think why I'm hopeful is because this paper pointed out something to me that's just intrinsic that there isn't a single answer, and there isn't a single way to make sure that you're moving forward. You have to try everything, and you have to combine the things that are working. So a mask that is fitted to your face 
we know that that works or double masking if you don't have if you don't like a fitted mask either one of those things that works being outside as opposed to indoors that works vaccines work but we can't just say you can do one of these things and not worry about everything else because you have to worry about a whole gambit of people minors you know if you're under the age of 16 there's no vaccine available for you right now um so are you not involving children in your sports especially in our area that is just a bizarre statement because our academy is so important to what's going on on our professional team so um this I'm hopeful because this paper pointed out that if you are willing to be adaptive, if you're willing to work with experts in many different fields and take all of their advice on what they're experts in, there's a chance that you can have a result that is, I mean, this was a positive result for me. You don't want anyone to get COVID. You certainly don't want anyone to have, you know, symptoms, long-term issues. You don't want anyone to die. But at 1% of people who voluntarily played and took all these precautions, that's a good result for me. Like, I think that's a po- an overall net positive. So for me, this showed that um, there's that possibility to grow and adapt and do more testing to find out what is working so that your next season can be even better than your first one so that's where i'm at and that's why i'm positive how did this uh this whole article leave you feeling uh yeah i think i think that's a nice summary like i think uh highlighting the importance of using multiple strategies to address covid as a way to continue to have right the sport that we love right and i think and I think for me, it, it really did come back to the question that I that I posed to you, this idea of like, you know, is it worth for like the social benefit that the limited social benefit that can that it provides in the sense that people still aren't able to get to get physically like get together in person? Um, is it worth the resources? Um, and you know, I think when we think about mental health, which is something that, that you bring up often that, that we've already talked about uh, in in this episode, yeah, I think it is worth it. I think, you know, having something for people to, to talk about, to, you know, to discuss. You know, I remember early on in the pandemic, they were like replaying like classic uh, games from like our local soccer team, like during the time that would be the normal right and it's like yeah that's cool like a couple times but please i don't want to do that right like there's no there's no that's not gonna cut it no no it's not so i mean anyway all that to say that i think yes i think the highlighting the importance of multiple strategies of personal um ownership and like i am part of a collective and like my uh, behavior affects the behavior of those around me and if we can all like come together to do this um then we'll get to do the thing we love i think that's something else that again that was not the focus of this paper but would be like a really cool like side thing like you know what were some of the reasons that you like was it only like individually motivated that like well i want to play and when i play i get paid and you know i don't know i digress and I, th- I think I'm done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're done? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. 
I just, I'm going to reiterate the thing that you said, that to remember you're part of a collective. So when, when we are moving forward and when we are living in our second summer of COVID and some of us have been vaccinated and the restrictions change and are possibly lifted, especially during the summer months, please remember not only what are you comfortable with as your risk, but to respect other people's risk appetite. Someone may be more reserved because of things that you don't know about in their life. And I think that you just really need to take stock of where you're comfortable and be willing to say, this is what I'm willing to do and this is how I'm living my life. And if if that fits with what you're doing right now and what risks you're willing to take, let's go do those things together. And if it's not, then we will get on a Zoom meeting and we will talk about the game later because I still think that you're important in my life. So that's just remember you're part of a collective. That's how we're going to soccer better through summer two of COVID-19. Liz, that was great. That was a great way to end the seventh episode of the third season of Soccer Better. It makes it sound like we've had a whole lot more episodes than we have, but we have put out quite a number of episodes. Yeah, and we're still finding articles. I'm All of you researchers, thank you. Thank this you. Is, this is amazing. That's right. All right, Liz, do you have anything else? Uh, thanks for putting up with my cat. <laughs> yeah, thanks for putting up with the high-quality audio that you get only here on Soccer Better. At Soccer Better. <laughs> All right, Liz, bye. Bye. Thank you to our host, The Beautiful Game Network. BGN covers teams across the MLS, USL Championship, and USL League One. Check out podcasts and written content at bgn.fm. You can follow us on Twitter at BGN Soccer Better. Head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to the show and leave us a review. Otherwise, let us know what you thought about this episode and be sure to share it with a friend. Remember, you can always soccer better. The music in our show is Empty Rooms by Booze Radley. Thanks to our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, official scarf supplier to USL, MLS, and US Soccer. Get custom scarves for your group or team at roughneckscarves.com. Tired of the same old uniforms and cookie cutter templates from Nike and Adidas? Looking for a unique, completely custom kit for your youth club, Sunday league squad, adult, or even pro team? Icarus FC can help you create the kit of your dreams at an affordable price. Let them help you design your custom kit today at IcarusFC.com.